Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. By the time you hear this, the 2023 edition of StokerCon will be well underway. Judging from all the buzz on social media, it looks like it's going to be quite a turnout, too. Depending on when you're listening, you may still have a shot at getting yourself a ticket to the virtual event. Well, I'd love to have attended in person this year, It just wasn't in the cards. But I'm still hoping to check out some of the festivities online. If you'd like to do the same, hustle over to StokerCon2023.com and grab your ticket before it's too late. Also, if you're curious about the ballot for the Bram Stoker Awards, you can find that at TheBramStokerAwards.com. There are some fantastic tales in the short fiction category by quite a few names you might recognize from the show, and plenty of other horrors in different categories, too. And hey, wouldn't you know it, you can expect to hear all of the nominees for short fiction produced for you here on Tales to Terrify sometime later next month. But until then, we've got plenty of frights to keep your nightmares fueled. Now, let's see what horrors we've conjured for you this evening. Our first story for the evening comes from Joanna Pinto. 
Joanna Pinto is a writer of short stories, plays, and interactive fiction. Her fiction has previously been published in Daily Science Fiction, Rune Bear, and Myriad by Hexagon. Her plays have been performed in London and New York. She is also a software engineer. She lives in Bristol, England, with her husband and son. Children of the Night, join me for Joanna Pinto's Berries, first published in Daily Science Fiction, June 2021. The blackberries grow over the graves in the sailor's graveyard. The thick bushes wrap around stone anchors and granite-coiled ropes, the leaves obscuring the dedications in English, Latin and Norwegian. Children gather the berries and take them home to be baked into crumble with apple, buttery and sweet. In the morning... They tell their parents about their dreams of creaking, stinking wooden ships and metal ships that creak too but differently, of faraway islands and the meaning of sailors' tattoos, of trawler decks gleaming silver with the catch, of the skip skock with the ship's rations, of the feeling of salt water in blistered hands, of the pain and hardship but also the freedom, except for those whose freedom is owned by other men. Their parents laugh at the funny things that children come out with. The berries glisten in the graveyard, fat and nourished, where the bones of the sailors lie. That was Joanna Pinto's Berries, as read by Janie Napier. Janie Napier is a passionate writer from the south of England. Though her growing love for horror may be a recent thing, she is a certified nerd through and through, and loves anything that gets both her mind turning and adrenaline rushing. Thank you, Janie. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? 
and some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Next up tonight, we have a classic tale of terror from none other than Edgar Allan Poe. Edgar Allan Poe was an American writer, poet, critic, and editor, best known for evocative short stories and poems that capture the imagination and interest of readers around the world. His imaginative storytelling and tales of mystery and horror gave birth to the modern detective story. Many of Poe's works, including The Telltale Heart and The Fall of the House of Usher, became literary classics. Some aspects of Poe's life, like his literature, are shrouded in mystery and the lines between fact and fiction have been blurred substantially since his death. Poe's final days remain somewhat of a mystery. He left Richmond on September 27th and was supposedly on his way to Philadelphia, but instead was found in Baltimore in great distress. He died four days later after uttering the words, Lord, help my poor soul. Perhaps fittingly, his actual cause of death remains a mystery to this day. Listen with me, children of the night, to Edgar Allan Poe's Manuscript Found in a Bottle, first printed as a contest winner in the Baltimore Sunday Visitor in October 1833. Of my country and of my family, I have little to say. Ill usage and length of years have driven me from the one and estranged me from the other. Hereditary wealth afforded me an education of no common order, and a contemplative turn of mind enabled me to methodize the stores which early study very diligently garnered up. Beyond all things, the work of the German moralists gave me great delight, not from any ill-advised admiration of their eloquent madness, from the ease with which my habits of rigid thought enabled me to detect their falsities. I have often been reproached with the aridity of my genius. A deficiency of imagination has been imputed to me as a crime, and the Puranism of my opinions has at all times rendered me notorious. Indeed, a strong relish for physical philosophy has, I fear, tinctured my mind with a very common error of this age. 
I mean, the habit of referring occurrences, even the least susceptible of such reference, to the principles of that science. Upon the whole, no person could be less liable than myself to be led away from the severe precincts of truth by the ignis fatui of superstition. I have thought proper to premise thus much, lest the incredible tale I have to tell should be considered rather the raving of a crude imagination than the positive experience of a mind of which the reveries of fancy have been a dead letter and a nullity. After many years spent in foreign travel, I sailed from the port of Batavia and the rich and populous island of Java on a voyage to the archipelago of Sunda Islands. I went as a passenger, having no other inducement than a kind of nervous restlessness which haunted me as a fiend. Our vessel was a beautiful ship of about 400 tons, copper-fastened, and built at Bombay of Malabartique. She was freighted with cotton wool and oil from the Lakative Islands. We had also on board koya, jaggery, ghee, coconuts, and a few cases of opium. The stowage was clumsily done, and the vessel consequently crank. We got underway with a mere breath of wind, and for many days stood along the eastern coast of Java without any other incident to beguile the monotony of our course than the occasional meeting with some of the small grabs of the archipelago with which we were bound. One evening, leaning over the taffrail, I observed a very singular isolated cloud to the northwest. It was remarkable, as well for its color, as for its being the first we had seen since our departure from Batavia. I watched it attentively until sunset, when it spread all at once to the eastward and westward, girding in the horizon with a narrow strip of vapor and looking like a long line of low beach. I noticed was soon afterwards attracted by the dusky red appearance of the moon and the peculiar character of the sea. The latter was undergoing a rapid change, and the water seemed more than unusually transparent. Although I could distinctly see the bottom, yet heaving the lead, I found the ship in fifteen fathoms. The air now became intolerably hot, and was loaded with spiral exhalations similar to those arising from heated iron. As night came on, every breath of wind died away, and a more entire calm it is impossible to conceive. The flame of a candle burned upon the poop without the least perceptible motion, and a long hair, held between the finger and thumb, hung without the possibility of detecting a vibration. However, as the captain said he could perceive no indication of danger, and as we were drifting in bodily to shore, he ordered the sails to be furled and the anchor let go. No watch was set, and the crew, consisting principally of Malays, stretched themselves deliberately upon deck. I went below, not without a full presentiment of evil. Indeed, every appearance warranted me in apprehending a samoom. I told the captain my fears, but he paid no attention to what I said, and left me without deigning to give a reply. My uneasiness, however, prevented me from sleeping, and at about midnight I went upon deck. But as I placed my foot upon the upper step of the companion ladder, I was startled by a loud humming noise, like that occasioned by the rapid revolution of a mill wheel and before I could ascertain its meaning, I found the ship quivering to its center. In the next instant, a wilderness of foam hurled us upon our beam ends, and rushing over us fore and aft swept the entire deck from stem to stern. The extreme fury of the blast proved, in great measure, the salvation of the ship. Although completely waterlogged, yet as her mass had gone by the board, she rose, after a minute, heavily from the sea, and, staggering a while beneath the immense pressure of the tempest, finally righted. By what miracle I escaped destruction, it is impossible to say. Stunned by the shock of the water, I found myself, upon recovery, jammed in between the stern post and rudder. 
With great difficulty, I gained my feet and looked dizzily around. Was at first struck with the idea of our being among breakers. So terrific, beyond the wildest imagination, was the whirlpool of mountainous and foaming ocean with which we were engulfed. After a while, I heard the voice of an old Swede, who had shipped with us the moment of our leaving port. I allude to him with my strength, and presently he came reeling aft. We soon discovered that we were the sole survivors of the accident. All on deck, with the exception of ourselves, had been swept overboard. The captain and mates must have perished as they slept, for the cabins were deluged with water. Without assistance, we could expect to do little for the security of the ship, and our exertions were at first paralyzed by the momentary expectation of going down. Our cable had, of course, parted like pack thread at the first breath of the hurricane, or we should have been instantaneously overwhelmed. We scudded with frightful velocity before the sea, and the water made clear breaches over us. The framework of our stern was shattered excessively, and in almost every respect, we had received considerable injury. But to our extreme joy, we found the pumps unchoked, and we had made no great shifting of our ballast. The main fury of the blast had already blown over, and we apprehended little danger from the violence of the wind. But we looked forward to its total cessation with dismay, well believing that, in our shattered condition, we should inevitably perish in the tremendous swell which would ensue. For five entire days and nights, during which our only sustenance was a small quantity of jaggery, procured with great difficulty from the forecastle, the hulk flew at a rate defying computation, before rapidly succeeding flaws of wind, which, without equaling the first violence of the Samoom, were still more terrific than any tempest I had before encountered. Our course for the first four days was, without trifling variations, southeast by south, and we must have run down the coast of New Holland. On the fifth day, the cold became extreme, although the wind had hauled round a point more to the northward. The sun arose with a sickly yellow luster and clamored a very few degrees above the horizon, emitting no decisive light. There were no clouds apparent, yet the wind was upon the increase and blew with a fitful and unsteady fury. About noon, as nearly as we could guess, our attention was again arrested by the appearance of the sun. It gave out no light properly so-called, but a dull and sullen glow without reflection, as if its rays were polarized. Just before sinking within the turgid sea, its central fires suddenly went out, as if hurriedly extinguished by some unaccountable power. It was a dim, silver-like rim, alone, as it rushed down the unfathomable ocean. We waited in vain for the arrival of the sixth day. That day, to me, has not arrived. To the Swede never did arrive. Thenceforward, we were enshrouded in pitchy darkness, so that we would not have seen an object at twenty paces from the ship. Eternal night continued to envelop us, all unrelieved by the phosphoric sea brilliancy to which we had been accustomed in the tropics. We observed, too, that although the tempest continued to rage with unabated violence, there was no longer to be discovered the usual appearance of surf or form which had hitherto attended us. All around were horror and thick gloom, and a black sweltering desert of ebony. Superstitious terror crept up by degrees into the spirit of the old Swede, and my own soul was wrapped up in silent wonder. We neglected all care of the ship, as worse than useless, and securing ourselves as well as possible to the stump of the mizen mast, looked out bitterly into the world of ocean. We had no means of calculating time, nor could we form any guess of our situation. 
We were, however, well aware of having made farther to the southward than any previous navigators, and felt great amazement at not meeting with the usual impediments of ice. In the meantime, every moment threatened to be our last. Every mountainous billow hurried to overwhelm us. This swell surpassed anything I had imagined possible, and that we were not instantly buried is a miracle. My companions spoke of the lightness of our cargo and reminded me of the excellent qualities of our ship. But I could not help feel the utter hopelessness of hope itself, and prepared myself gloomily for that death which I thought nothing could defer beyond an hour, as with every nod of way the ship made, the swelling of the black stupendous seas became more dismally appalling. At times became dizzy with the velocity of our descent into some watery hell, where the air grew stagnant and no sound disturbed the slumbers of the kraken. We were at the bottom of one of these abysses, when a quick scream from my companion broke fearfully upon the night. See, see, cried he, shrieking in my ears. Almighty God, see, see. As he spoke, I became aware of a dull, sullen glare of red light which streamed down the sides of the vast chasm where we lay, and threw a fitful brilliancy upon our deck. Casting my eyes upward, I beheld a spectacle which froze the current of my blood. At a terrific height directly above us, and upon the very verge of the precipitous descent, hovered a gigantic ship of perhaps four thousand tons. Although upreared upon the summit of a wave more than a hundred times her own altitude, her apparent size still exceeded that of any ship of the line or East Indiaman in existence. Her huge hull was of deep, dingy black, unrelieved by any of the customary carvings of a ship. A single row of brass cannon protruded from her open ports, and dashed from their polished surfaces the fires of innumerable battle lanterns, which swung to and fro about her rigging. But what mainly inspired us with horror and astonishment was that she bore up under a press of sail in the very teeth of that supernatural sea, and of that ungovernable hurricane. When we first discovered her, her bows were alone to be seen, as she rose slowly from the dim and horrible gulf beyond her. For a moment of intense terror, she paused upon the giddy pinnacle, as if in contemplation of her own sublimity, and trembled and tottered and came down. At this instant, I know not what sudden self-possession came over my spirit. Staggering as far aft as I could, I awaited fearlessly the ruin that was to overwhelm. Our own vessel was at length ceasing from her struggles and sinking with her head to the sea. The shock of the descending mass struck her, consequently, in that portion of her frame which was already under water, and the inevitable result was to hurl me, with irresistible violence, upon the rigging of the stranger. As I fell, the ship hove in stays and went about, and to the confusion ensuing I attributed my escape from the notice of the crew. With little difficulty, I made my way, unperceived, to the main hatchway, which was partially open, and soon found an opportunity of secreting myself in the hold. Why I did so, I can hardly tell. An indefinite sense of awe, which at first sight of the navigators of the ship had taken hold of my mind, was perhaps the principle of my concealment. I was unwilling to trust myself with a race of people who had offered, to the cursory glance I had taken, so many points of vague novelty doubt and apprehension. I therefore thought proper to contrive a hiding place in the hold. This I did by removing a small portion of the shifting boards, in such a manner as to afford me a convenient retreat beneath the huge timbers of the ship. I had scarcely completed my work when a footstep in the hold forced me to make use of it. A man passed by my place of concealment with a feeble and unsteady gait. 
I could not see his face, but had an opportunity of observing his general appearance. There was about it an evidence of great age and infirmity. His knees tottered beneath a load of years, and his entire frame quivered under the burthen. He muttered to himself in a low, broken tone, some words of a language which I could not understand, and groped in a corner among a pile of singular-looking instruments and decayed charts of navigation. His manner was a wild mixture of the peevishness of second childhood and the solemn dignity of a god. He at length went on deck, and I saw him no more. A feeling for which I have no name has taken possession of my soul, a sensation which will admit no analysis, to which the lessons of bygone time are inadequate, and for which I fear futurity itself will offer me no key. To a mind constituted like my own, the latter consideration is an evil. I shall never, I know that I shall never be satisfied with regard to the nature of my conceptions. Yet it is not wonderful that these conceptions are indefinite, since they have their origin in sources so utterly novel. A new sense, a new entity is added to my soul. It is long since I first trod the deck of this terrible ship, and the rays of my destiny are, I think, gathering to a focus. Incomprehensible men wrapped up in meditations of a kind which I cannot divine. Concealment is utter folly on my part, for the people will not see. It was but just now that I passed directly before the eyes of the maid. It was no long ago that I ventured into the captain's own private cabin and took thence the materials with which I write and have written. I shall from time to time continue this journal. It is true that I may not find an opportunity of transmitting it to the world, but I will not fail to make the endeavor. At the last moment I will enclose the message in a bottle and cast it within the sea. An incident has occurred which has given me new room for meditation. Are such things the operation of ungoverned chance? I had ventured upon deck and thrown myself down, without attracting any notice, among a pile of rattling stuff and old sails in the bottom of the yawl. And while musing upon the singularity of my fate, I unwittingly daubed with a tar brush the edges of a neatly folded studding sail which lay near me on a barrel. The studding sail is now bent upon the ship, and the thoughtless touches of the brush are spread out into the word discovery. I have made many observations lately upon the structure of the vessel. Although well-armed, she is not, I think, a ship of war. Her rigging, build, and general equipment all negative a supposition of this kind. What she is not, I can easily perceive, but what she is, I fear it is impossible to say. I know not how it is, but in scrutinizing her strange model and singular cast of spars, her huge size and overgrown suits of canvas, her severely simple bow and antiquated stern, there will occasionally flash across my mind a sensation of familiar things, and there is always mixed up with such indistinct shadows of recollection an unaccountable memory of old foreign chronicles and ages long ago. I have been looking at the timbers of the ship. She is built of a material to which I am a stranger. There is a peculiar character about the wood which strikes me as rendering it unfit for the purpose to which it has been applied. I mean its extreme porousness considered independently of the worm-eating condition which is a consequence of navigation in these seas. And, apart from the rottenness attendant upon age, it will appear perhaps an observation somewhat over-curious, but this wood would have every characteristic of Spanish oak, if Spanish oak were distended by any unnatural means. 
In reading the above sentence, a curious apothem of an old weather-beaten Dutch navigator comes full upon my recollection. It is as sure, he was wont to say when any doubt was entertained of his veracity, as sure as there is a sea where the ship itself will grow in bulk like the living body of the seaman. About an hour ago, I made bold to thrust myself among a group of the crew. They paid me no manner of attention, and although I stood in the very midst of them all, seemed utterly unconscious of my presence. Like the one I had first seen in the hold, they all bore about them the marks of a hoary old age. Their knees trembled with infirmity, their shoulders were bent double with decrepitude, their shriveled skin rattled in the wind. Their voices were low, tremulous, and broken, their eyes glistened with the room of years, and their gray hairs streamed terribly in the tempest. Around them, on every part of the deck, lay scattered mathematical instruments of the most quaint and obsolete construction. I mentioned, some time ago, the bending of a studding sail. From that period, the ship, being thrown dead off the wind, has continued her terrible course due south, with every rag of canvas packed upon her, from her trucks to her lower studding sail booms, and rolling every moment her top gallant yard arms into the most appalling hell of water which it can enter into the mind of a man to imagine. I have just left the deck, where I find it impossible to maintain a footing, although the crew seem to experience little inconvenience. It appears to me a miracle of miracles that our enormous bulk is not swallowed up at once and forever. We are surely doomed to hover continually upon the brink of eternity, without taking a final plunge into the abyss. From billows a thousand times more stupendous than any I've ever seen, we glide away with the facility of the arrowy seagull, and the colossal waters rear their heads above us like the demons of the deep, but like demons confined to simple threats and forbidden to destroy. I am led to attribute these frequent escapes to the only natural cause to which can account for such effect. I must suppose the ship to be within the influence of some strong current or impetus undertow. I have seen the captain face to face in his own cabin, but as I expected he paid me no attention. Although in his appearance there is, to a casual observer, nothing which might bespeak him more or less than a man. Still, a feeling of irrepressible reverence and awe mingled with the sensation of wonder with which I regarded him. In stature he is nearly my own height, that is, above five feet eight inches. He is of a well-knit and compact frame of body, neither robust nor remarkably otherwise but it is a singularity of the expression which reigns upon the face. It is the intense, the wonderful, the thrilling evidence of old age, so utter, so extreme, which excites within my spirit a sense, a sentiment ineffable. His forehead, although little wrinkled, seemed to bear upon it the stamp of a myriad of years. His gray hairs are records of the past, his grayer eyes are sibyls of the future. The cabin floor was thickly strewn with strange iron-clasped folios, and moldering instruments of science and obsolete long-forgotten charts. His head was bowed upon his hands, and he pored with a fiery, unquiet eye over a paper which I took to be a commission, and which, at all events, bore the signature of a monarch. He muttered to himself, as to the first seaman whom I saw in the hold, some low, peevish syllables of a foreign tongue, and although the speaker was close at my elbow, his voice seemed to reach my ears from the distance of a mile. The ship, and all in it, are imbued with the spirit of Eld. The crew glide to and fro like the ghosts of buried centuries. Their eyes have an eager and uneasy meaning, 
and when their fingers fall athward of my path in the wild glare of the battle lanterns, I feel as I've never felt before. Although I've been all my life a dealer in antiquities, and have imbibed the shadows of fallen columns at Baalbek and Tadmor and Persepolis, until my very soul has become a ruin. When I look around me, I feel ashamed of my former apprehensions. If I trembled at the blast which has hitherto attended us, shall I not stand aghast at a warring of wind and ocean, to convey any idea of which the words tornado and samum are trivial and ineffective? All in the immediate vicinity of the ship, in the blackness of eternal night and a chaos of formless water, but about a league on either side of us may be seen, indistinctly at intervals, stupendous ramparts of ice towering away into the desolate sky and looking like the walls of the universe. As I imagine this ship proves to be an occurrence, if that appellation can properly be given to a tide which, howling and shrieking by the white ice, thunders on to the southward with a velocity like the headlong dashing of a cataract. To conceive the horror of my sensations is, I presume, utterly impossible. Yet a curiosity to penetrate the mysteries of these awful regions predominates even over my despair, and will reconcile me to the most hideous aspect of death. It is evident that we are hurrying onwards to some exciting knowledge, some never-to-be-imparted secret whose attainment is destruction. Perhaps this current leads us to the southern pole itself. It must be confessed that a supposition apparently so wild has every probability in its favor. The crew pace the deck with unquiet and tremulous step, but there is upon their countenance an expression more of the eagerness of hope than the apathy of despair. In the meantime, the wind is still in our poop, and as we carry a crowd of canvas, the ship is at times lifted bodily from out the sea. But oh, horror upon horror, the ice opens suddenly to the right and to the left, and we are whirring dizzily in immense concentric circles, round and round the borders of a gigantic amphitheater, the summit of whose walls is lost in the darkness and the distance. But a little time will be left me to ponder upon my destiny. The circles rapidly grow small. We are plunging madly within the grasp of the whirlpool, and amid a roaring and bellowing and thundering of ocean and of tempest, the ship is quivering and, oh, God, and going down. That was Edgar Allan Poe's Manuscript Found in a Bottle, as read by Matthew Bradford. Matt Bradford is a Canadian voice actor, writer, and editor who can be heard on the No Sleep Podcast, ZombieCast, and Video Game Outsiders. Outside of the booth, he can be found chasing his kids, hunting down voicing gigs, and gaming into the wee hours. You can find him on Twitter at Matto McFly. Thank you, Matt. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. Incredible fans like Amanda Carrillo, Amanda Gottfried, 
Kathy Robinson, Lessel Baxter, Orion D. Hegra, and Paul Belcher, whose generous support helps keep the lights on and flickering ominously. Not a supporter already? Head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks like ad-free episodes, bonus content, and one-of-a-kind collectibles and merch packs. Every dollar goes back into this show to make it as horrific as possible, and we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Stitcher, Podchaser, or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You'll not only put an unnaturally wide smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales, too. Why not share your love of the show out in the world with some Tales to Terrify merch? TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will take you to our Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy custom and curated designs that's always growing. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Meredith Morgenstern, Andrew Gibson, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we seek solace in the darkness with more Tales to Terrify. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.